Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your host is Becky Olson. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends, and family by providing resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here is your host, Becky Olson. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Becky Olson. I'm the co-founder of Breast Friends. I'm also a five-time survivor of advanced stage breast cancer. I'm a motivational speaker and the published author of The Hat That Saved My Life. And today, before we start our show, I wanted to share a little inspirational moment that I picked up this weekend in an old issue of Woman's World magazine. My husband actually found it at our cabin, and he said, is this yours? And I didn't buy it, but it had something really good in it, and it was called One Step is All It Takes. And here, let me just read it word for word what it said. One positive thought is enough to spark another. One smile is enough to touch a heart. One act of kindness is enough to lift someone up. One step is enough to start a journey, and one dream is enough to transform a life. The power of one is enough to work wonders, and you, all my listeners, you've got it. We decided to make June our kindest month ever, and Bill introduced this concept early at the end of May, and he says, you know what, let's make June our kindest month ever, and it's working so well, I said, well, what about July? (laughs) So, before he speaks, because he's nodding and smiling right now, I'm going to go ahead and introduce him, because you've all heard his voice before. Um, Today, my guest is my husband, Bill Olson. And we're going to do something a little bit different today. We've never done this before. I'm, I'm calling this story time. And this today is part one of story time. I'm going to read from the book that I wrote uh, back in 2004. It was the first printing of it. And it's called The Hat That Saved My Life. And you always hear me do it in the introduction. Um, I wrote this book to just kind of really share a little bit about my journey. And my husband, Bill Olson, helped me through my journey. And he's still with me right now on my fifth battle. And we just celebrated 40 years of marriage in May. And he's been with with me as all these thoughts turned into a book. And he knows this story, I think, probably as intimately as I do. I think on the third printing, or maybe on the introduction to your radio show, you should say, you know, the co-founder of Breast Friends, five-time survivor of van stage cancer and 40-year survivor of marriage with my husband, <laughs> Bill Olson. Because that's, that's an ordeal it, that you've overcome is. or worked yes. yourself through for 40 years. So <laughs> it, it, it and honey, I would do it again for another 40. 40 years. God of, gave me that much time. I you would, know what we say, Marge. <laughs> yes, Herb. We call each other Marge and Herb, and Herb is actually Herb minus the H, because, you know, it's silent, so I call him Herb sometimes. 40 years of marriage, Marge. <laughs> so I wanted to share something really kind of exciting, though, because Bill has been a super, super partner in this effort with me. You know, one of the goals that we talk about one step at a time, you know, can make a difference. Well, long time ago, I wrote my bucket list, and one of the things that a lot of you know now was to speak in all 50 states, and I actually managed to get to 32 of them with 18 to go. And then with the coronavirus and my recent diagnosis with stage four cancer, we kind of thought, well, maybe we need to revise that goal just a little bit. So we um, changed the goal to speak to people in all 50 states. And as of last week, we got our last two states in, which were Oklahoma and New Jersey. So now 
I've been listened to. This podcast has been listened to in all 50 states, but we're going to go one better than that. I did get a, a printout on all the countries that have listened to our podcast, and we have been picked up in 113 countries. And there are nations on that list. I have to look up on Wikipedia and Google to find out where they are, what language they speak, what faiths they have, what foods they serve. It's a learning experience for it both of is. us. It is. So I got a big map like, that's coming. Who knew France was where French fries come from? I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so now you I, know. I, got a, I ordered a big map that's coming. It's a three-piece three map. It's a world map with all the countries. And I got these pins. And as soon as it arrives, I'm going to start putting the pins in. And so we'll just kind of keep track. And so if you are listening to this radio show, Please go to Breast Friends Around the Globe, and I'm going to plug this again on later. Facebook. Yes, on Facebook. Sorry, good good catch. Go to Facebook, to your page, and then search for Breast Friends Around the Globe, and tell me what country you're listening from. And if it's one that is not on my, my list yet, I'm plugging you in. So just tell me what country and what episode you listen to, and I'm going to get you plugged in so that we can keep track going forward. Before we get started, I have to say to my Belgian friends who are listening on your show. Cool. <clears throat> I used to live there. They claim honors of inventing the French fry. They do. <laughs> with they man- that with mayonnaise, the right? Well, <laughs> yes. It's, it's good We've got that a little backwards, but that's okay. <laughs> that's their claim to fame is they invented the French fry. That's awesome. So today we're going to read from my book and I have no idea how far we're going to get through, but anytime that I decide that we don't have a guest or I decide not to work on bringing a guest on, which I always try to work on bringing a guest on, but um, we're just going to pick up the book where we left off and go to part two and then part three. So we're just going to start today with the preface and the prologue and then see if we can get through chapter one. So I'm going to let my husband read the preface to you. The preface. Okay. This book was written with love and tremendous respect for breast cancer patients, as well as their caregivers. Whether they be friends or family members, we are all in this together. We will all be touched by breast cancer in some way. It is estimated that nearly one in eight women will be diagnosed with the disease sometime in their life. The other seven will know her. Now, that line came from Micah, our son. It did. Our son, Micah, when he was approximately... I don't know, 15, I think. Young teenager. Came up with that line. Came up with that line. <laughs> I love that. So, again, one in eight women will be diagnosed with the disease sometime in their life. The other seven will know her. Some of us will lose someone we love. Does someone you love have breast cancer? Perhaps it is a family member or a close friend. Maybe it is someone you care about <laughs> but are less intimate with, like a neighbor or co-worker. As a caregiver, hopefully, you will find my story helpful in giving you an understanding of what it feels like to go through a cancer diagnosis and treatment. Perhaps, through my story, you will relate to the fear, the loneliness, and the isolation that the patient often experiences. Perhaps you will learn, as I did, the importance of humor and the impact that it had on my survival. Boy, no kidding. And you played a big part in the humor. Well, you have good friends with great smiles and hearts of humor. So we're all we always <laughs> blessed with humor in our family and friends. Um, perhaps you will learn, as I did, the importance of humor and the impact that it had on my survival. I will share with you some of the wonderful and practical things that others did for me. My hope is that 
should you have a loved one or a close acquaintance who has been diagnosed with breast cancer, you can understand what she is experiencing and use the ideas in my book to help her survive. And some men also get breast cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of these ideas take only a few minutes, but the thoughtfulness will be remembered for a lifetime. Help her or him. She will feel better and so will you. And Bill, you bring up a good point about men and breast cancer. Approximately 1% of all the breast cancer diagnoses are among men. So it's not 1% of men get breast cancer. It's 1% of diagnoses will we'll go to a male, will be male breast cancer. So even though it's a small number for the man who gets it, it's 100% for him. Mm-hmm. And it's scary as can be because they don't, they don't expect it to be cancer. And they certainly don't expect it to be breast cancer. And, you know, it's very embarrassing when they get this disease because they think of it as a woman's disease. We're passing water back and forth. We're both saying you're choking. I don't know. It's not COVID, though. We're good. Oh, yeah. Uh, You had a board member on Breast Friends who was a survivor of breast cancer, a male. Yes, we did. We did very much. And and he started an organization, just a support group for men with breast cancer and and was there every month to meet with these gentlemen and get their questions answered. And one thing we learned, though, is men really don't like to go to support groups. That's something he told us. They want to come. They want to get their questions answered. Exactly. That's yeah. support for a lot of men. But yeah. but they just want to come and get their questions answered and then move on like it doesn't really, you know, doesn't really exist. And, and that's not a dis- discount for anything that they're going through. It's just one of the differences between mm-hmm. male and female. So, um, so I'm going to finish reading this last little paragraph unless you want to, and then I'll go to the next section. Why don't you do that? You read this. If you are the one that is facing treatment for breast cancer, please know that you are among greatness. Over 200,000 women will be diagnosed in the United States this year. That's over 500 per day. Mm-hmm. The survival rate is improving. Yes. You are in a sisterhood that only we can understand. Once a member, we will be connected forever. You are the beginning of a journey that will take you to places you've never been before. I've met some amazing people on my journey. You will meet them too. As a sister survivor, perhaps this book will give you hope, and that is the the best is just to come. Yep, that is for sure. Thank you, Bill, for covering for me because, um, you know, when you start coughing, it's pretty pretty hard to just stop. So, um, all right, so I'm going to go to the prologue now. We're kind of skipping through the little bits of this book, but I want to kind of get to the basics for you. So I'm going to give you a little bit of my background before um, I was diagnosed and actually before I even met Bill. Bill's Bill's on page, this is Roman numeral pages here in the beginning, and I think he's on page... 15. I'll tell you in a minute. (laughs) So this is the prologue to my book. In 1996, I lived through the greatest challenge of my life. It was a time that I hope never to repeat. Looking back, however, I have discovered that I wouldn't trade that time or experience for anything. I learned some things that forever changed my life. I've been blessed with new friendships that I never would have made. I changed my priorities at work, excuse me, which unfortunately seemed that I valued more than my own family. I learned the importance of unwrapping my gift, something you will hear about in a later chapter. Looking back on my life, there is one word that describes me best, and that word is fighter. At age 16, I worked at a fast food restaurant in Seattle, Washington. 
It was my first job. I worked hard and made good tips delivering food to dine-in-your-car customers. Now, I'm not going to say who it was because I don't want to get sued, <laughs> but, but you can probably guess. Um, and Sonic was not around then, so, <laughs> so take a guess. Anyway, I didn't really like my job, but it paid for trips to the mall with my friends. I tolerated my job. However, my boss was another matter. I didn't like him at all. I always arrived at work early so I could get my company vest and hat on in time to start my day. One day, I arrived early as usual and was in the back room getting ready for my shift. I had just buttoned up the orange and white striped vest and secured the matching hat with a bobby pin. I was bending over to tie my shoe when my boss sneaked up behind me and pinched my butt. And he said, we need to add a little meat to those bones. Oh yeah, I responded, I quit. Now this is not in the book, but just so you know, my mother had just dropped me off at at work and then she left. We didn't have cell phones back then, so I couldn't call her and say, mom, come back and get me. I had to go next door and wait for her to get home and then call and have her come back. So... Okay, back to the book. With no additional comment, I threw the hat on the floor, ripped off the vest, and threw it at the owner's fat head. I went next door, called my mom, and she came to pick me up. By age 18, I decided that I knew more than my parents. I knew everything. Armed with my, my husband will probably tell you I still think I do. (laughs) Armed with my high school diploma, I entered business school, and less than one year later, I met a 31-year-old man who would soon be my first husband. I quit school and got a job, and against my father's wishes, we got married a few months later. Two years later, I got pregnant, and two kids later, got divorced. At age 26, single again and a lot smarter, I took a weekend trip by boat from Seattle to Victoria, B.C. That's up in Canada, for those of you who don't know this part of the world. It was July 1979. I went with a man I'm going to call Dick for the purpose of this book. And we went together in an attempt to get to know each other a little better. Within an hour of being together on the boat, we knew we had nothing in common. We finished the trip together, but again, the fighter in me knew that this was the most it would ever be. We hardly spoke. The trip back to Seattle was beautiful, however. The weather was gorgeous. The sky was bright blue, not a cloud overhead. It seemed that everyone on the boat was crammed into a small area on the back deck to enjoy the sunshine for the four-hour trek back to Seattle. It looked like standing room only as Dick and I tried to join the crowd. Within moments of stepping foot on board, we realized there would be no place for us in the back, and we were doomed to the humid interior of the ship. However, just as we were turning to make our way toward the door into the ship's dark and dreary cabin, I saw him. Across the crowded back deck of the ship, I caught a glimpse of a young, handsome man He appeared to be waving at us. As I focused on him, I realized he was yelling something at us. Intrigued, I listened more intently and realized he was telling us that he had two seats near him and we were welcome to join the group. I smiled at Dick and told him, hey, we don't have to go inside. There's room over there. And I pointed at that handsome man. Dick frowned. We made our way toward the two empty chairs, which by now were the envy of all the people standing nearby. My eyes, however, were on the young man. He was slender, tan, blue-eyed with dark hair. He was dressed in all white, white slacks, white shirt, just like the good guy in a movie. Our eyes met and a spark flew between us and we were still 20 feet away from each other. 
We got closer and the sparks intensified. I knew there was something special about this man. When we finally stood face to face, he told me his name was Bill. Suddenly, I wished I'd left Dick in Canada. Conversation came easily between us, and we were careful to include my travel partner. I could tell that Bill wasn't sure about the relationship between me and the man that I boarded the boat with. I was eager to tell him, but I didn't want to be rude. As the trip progressed, we became better acquainted. Stolen moments here and there gave way to private conversations. Eventually, Bill found out that Dick and I lived in Seattle. When it was getting close to departure time, Bill asked if the three of us could exchange addresses and phone numbers. We did. He very discreetly checked the addresses and phone numbers we both provided and realizing that they were not the same, crumpled one into a little ball and placed the other in his shirt pocket. I saw that action and we smiled at each other. Leaving the boat a short time later was difficult. I knew I would never see Dick again. That didn't bother me. What did bother me was that I wasn't sure I would ever see this handsome young man again. Our clandestine conversations on the snack line were the best moments of the trip, and I didn't want it to Boy, end. Boy, were those snacks good, too. <laughs> I remember the snacks. I do, too. <laughs> and so, okay, now you just disrupted my, my emotion Yeah, it here. was very romantic. It was very romantic. I had to we, put a comedy relief we in We talked for about you. Coca-Cola and French fries and all and those. Children. And children. Um, anyway, so let me read that last line again. Our clandestine conversations on the snack line were the best moments of the trip, and I didn't want it to end. It did, and we parted ways at the exit ramp. Well, there's a little more to that story, but I'll save that for another time. Eventually, Bill and I reconnected and scheduled another time to get together. Over the next few months, we met regularly. He would come to Seattle or I would go to Portland. Being a single mom was difficult, but I was a fighter, and I knew that I was better off raising my children alone than staying married to my first husband. Having Bill in my life was helpful. He fell in love with my two children, and we fell in love with each other. So on that, we're going to take our first break and come back and finish the prologue. So stay tuned. We will be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Female cancers affect women, but women's effects are felt throughout our families, workplaces, and communities. Electa is driving advances in precision radiation medicine across our portfolio of devices. By enabling treatment that is highly responsive to changes in tumor shape, position, and biology, but doesn't compromise the health of surrounding tissue and the patient, we protect the moments that matter in the lives of women with female cancers and everyone they touch. Learn more at Electa.com. That's E-L-E-K-T-A.com. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. Um, I'm Before I get back to reading the, the rest of the prologue, I wanted to share with all of our listeners that if you love this show as much as I hope you do, as much as I do, um, please consider joining our our movement, I guess if we want to call it that. There are four ways for you to be involved in this. First, share the link to the program. Let your friends know you found this podcast. It's really uplifting you in some way and let them know how but share share the links to the podcast also you can donate to the program and you know during this time of covid things are tough for everybody out there and breast friends could certainly use your help so um, you can either donate via text which is bf radio and text it to the number 41444 or of course you can go to breastfriends.org and um, to the donate page and make a donation online. So either way, but that will help with Breast Friends just just to give us that little extra um, cushion that we need to keep this program alive and doing well for you. And then also go to Facebook, as we mentioned earlier, join Breast Friends around the globe and introduce yourself to the group. Tell us who you are, where you're listening from. And, you know, people will say hi to you. It's pretty cool. And then also, if you have an inspiring story or an educational um, program that you'd like to share with us, nominate yourself as a guest for the podcast because I'm always looking for good guests. And if I don't have one, you just have to listen to more of my story. That's what, what can I say? I guess since I'm sitting here and I'm a professional fundraiser, I'm going to share a message to the listeners right now. Send the money. <laughs> Send the money. Um, seriously, if you're listening and it takes a little extra effort, um, do the things that Becky said. You can go to their website, which is breastfriends.org. And there's a way to donate there. And what a difference it makes. Breast Friends is not a huge organization, but they make a huge difference in the life of lives of other people. And so uh, a small gift can make a big difference in a small organization. You will be greatly appreciated. Yes, you, you really will. will be. Yep. And then there's a couple ways to do it. Becky mentioned this, Breast Friends Around the Globe. Mm-hmm. Breast Friends is listened to in over 113 nations, or right at 113. If you share this with folks that live in different parts of the world uh, and they listen, um, you're going to be connected to a huge global society of people that are sharing these stories and and experiences about breast cancer diagnosis and treatment and how to work through uh, with some of the best advice with Becky's um, guests, uh, work through these problems as a family or as a married mm-hmm. couple or, or folks that are, are significant to each other. So again, support the program. Send the money. <laughs> He's so good that's, at that. That's my line. Send the money. Profe- <laughs> professional fundraiser. And again, just in the opening moments of the of the program, we talked about um, 
how it just takes one step at a time to kind of get moving in a different direction and and having you take one extra step to make this happen for us is a life changer. I for will breast appreciate friends. it. I'll be yes. watching for that. Yes, and Bill's a great donor. I'm going to write friends. him a thank you note thank if they you. send you money. Oh, really? Yes, I personal will. thank you a note from my note. husband. All right, awesome. You can prove it. <laughs> I'll prove it. Okay, cool. I'm good at that. Okay, so back to the prologue. Um, so we just fell in love with each other and. He fell in love with the kids, and we're all just one happy you fall in love. Yay. Okay, so back to the prologue. In April of 1980, at age 27, I placed my home for sale in Seattle and moved my children to Portland. Bill and I were married one month later on May 17th, the day before Mount St. Helens erupted. Now, our friends often joke about the hidden meaning behind that event on the mountain. Like, oh, that was your fault. Okay. And the four of us began our life together. We got pregnant one month after our wedding, and when Actually, I was... Actually, you got pregnant. No, we did, too. This is a family okay, thing, okay? okay. okay. Technically <laughs> we, speaking. Well, I know, but, you know. Okay. It's, it's, I just didn't want people to think... See, men can now take paternity leave because they're having a baby. Not then. <laughs> Not then. That is true. It was only for women. But we all know that it's different now. Anyway, so oh. we got pregnant one month after our wedding. And when I was six months into the pregnancy, Bill was offered a job in Medford, Oregon. Beautiful. We moved less than 30 days later. And, and I was very, very pregnant when this happened. I remember, this isn't in the book, but I remember the day he called me. I was home taking a nap. And he called me and he goes, Honey, I, I want you to know I got a, an offer. I already said yes. So I hope you're okay with it. But we're moving to Medford. And I said, Okay, honey, hold on. I'll call you right back. I hung up the phone. I went and splashed water on my face because I wasn't sure what I just heard. And then I called him back and I said, okay, try that again. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes when things happen, you just know it's the right thing to do. And and it was what we needed to do at the time. So that's, we moved. And we moved less than 30 days later. We discovered the home of our dreams. It was a drafty, old, yet beautiful home. It was built in 1935. The home had inlaid hardwood floors, high ceilings, and French doors. It was gorgeous. I wonder if the Belgians invented those doors. I don't know. The Belgian doors? Belgian fries, (laughs) Belgian doors. It had been vacant for about a year, so the price was right. But it was tricky figuring out how to pay for it because my house in Seattle hadn't even had a nibble on it yet. It had been vacant and on the market for a long time. Well, we said a prayer over lunch, and to our surprise, discovered that God must have been holding that house on the market for for us because that day the house in Seattle sold. We were back at at the real estate office trying to write up a contingent offer, and we got a phone call that we had an offer on our home in Seattle. So that was pretty pretty impressive, I think. Uh, the sale was clean and easy, and we were able to move in within days of finding it. Everything was going great. I would stay home, enjoy my pregnancy, and remain home with the new baby. However, the first month's heat bill, <laughs> 1935 old drafty house, sent me in search of a new job. Being a fighter, I couldn't believe... I mean, honestly, Billy, I couldn't believe that no one would hire me just because I was eight months pregnant by then. I mean, totally distressed by our financial situation, I found I really only had one option. I became a Tupperware lady. I met some neighbors, booked some parties, and stayed busy up until the day that Beth was born. Beth was our first together. After her birth, I took a few weeks off, but the bills kept coming in, and we didn't have enough money to meet our monthly expenses. I decided to return to work. I had held jobs since I was 16 years old with that first job at the fast food restaurant. 
By the way, I just want to say, if that happened today, remember the fast food restaurant where he pinched my butt? If that happened today, I would own that restaurant. I mean, it's just, things are different. I would own it. <laughs> Not that I'd want to necessarily, but I would. Um, okay, so let's see, where are we? <clears throat> no longer pregnant, I knew I could get a real job. I liked selling plastic bowls, but I figured out right away that the way to make money in Tupperware was to become a manager. It was hard work, but being a fighter, I figured out exactly what I needed to do, and again, one step at a time, and began systematically working through the objectives. I became a manager four weeks later. The company car was a great addition to the family. I continued to thrive in the business, and I was so dedicated to my success that even pregnancy wouldn't stop me. We became pregnant with our second child, Elijah, and I worked throughout that pregnancy too, holding parties, managing a team of about 20 dealers, attending conferences and seminars. And one particular day when our son was 10 days away from his due date, I held three parties, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one later that evening. I was completely exhausted from packing and unpacking my Tupperware bags and hauling things in and out of my car. My back hurt. My feet ached and I was running on fumes, but I was too tired to eat. I remember feeling particularly irritable, and I told Bill that night as we crawled into bed, if I don't have this kid tonight, I'm not having him. I went into labor six hours later. Fighter! (laughs) I enjoyed selling Tupperware because it gave me the opportunity to be home when the kids needed me. Somewhere in there, I had our third child, my fifth, Micah. However, due to some unfortunate circumstances, my husband lost his job, the economy was tough, and he had a difficult time finding another one. So I decided to give up Tupperware and move on to some other opportunities. I knew it would be hard being away from the kids all day, but we had five kids and no steady source of income. I found a full-time job as the director of advertising for the Chamber of Commerce in Medford. I worked really hard, and we more than doubled our advertising revenues that first year. I continued to work hard and finally made the move to corporate America. I had a chance to work for the largest yellow page company in the Northwest. I knew there was big money in that industry, but the hours would be grueling. I was up to the challenge and took a job in the Medford office. Things were moving along nicely. Work was challenging and I was quite successful. We found great daycare for the kids. Life at home was good. So I thought, I knew we'd been through some difficult times, but we were no different than most families. Overall, it seemed that we were doing well. Sadly, I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. I was too busy. Less than a year later, I had the chance for a promotion, but it meant a move to Portland, Oregon, nearly six hours away by car. We put the house on the market, but this time we waited. Accepting the promotion, I traveled the 270 miles to Portland on Sunday and returned home the following Friday. Bill stayed in Medford with the kids, hoping the house would sell. I stayed with Bill's mom in Portland during the week, hoping for the same. This went on every week for the next 13 months. Every Sunday, the kids cried as I was ready to leave. Mommy, don't go. And every Sunday, I cried as I drove away. I didn't realize how difficult this was for my husband. He was job hunting while taking care of the house, the family, and waiting for someone, anyone, to make us an offer. We continued living in this nightmare for over a year. The real estate market had taken a turn for the worse. We couldn't sell the house. So we decided that enough was enough, and we took out a second mortgage on our Medford home. We used the extra money to make a down payment on a house in Portland. Soon after, we moved the family to our new home and then placed our Medford home on the rental market. It didn't miss a beat. Working 12 to 14-hour days and living together in the same house once again, 
I still didn't see my family. I was winning awards and receiving recognition. I believed it was okay because it meant more money for the family. This went on for the next four years. Finally, in 1996, at age 43, I was given news that stopped me cold. I was told, you have breast cancer. Ah, that brings back a memory or two. <laughs> I, I, that's not a, a moment, that breast cancer diagnosis is not a moment that I, that I really cherished at that time. Um, in the book on the next page, there's a photograph that Bill and I took um, in New York when I went on a company trip. And uh, we were actually stopping there, and then we went to Greece after that. And in the background, <clears throat> excuse me, is a picture of the Twin Towers. This was before they obviously were knocked down. But that picture is in here because it reminds me that our lives can change in an instant. And not always for the worse, sometimes for the better. Excuse me. And you're going to see many moments of that in the rest of the story. So, um, okay. So, Bill, what do you have to say about any of that? You remember those days, right? All the commuting and the craziness. Yeah, I'd say uh, in retroflexion, reflection. Reflection, retrospect, (laughs) something like that, yeah. That that was a mistake. It probably was. It was a huge mistake. I think couples should stay together even when things are difficult. And um, it's very difficult to separate your family and and not suffer. Uh, The children, the relationship. And I don't think that uh, in my third or fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh life, I would ever do that again. Yeah. Ever allow it to happen. You know, and it's interesting because the first time we made the move to Medford, Remember how quickly the house sold in Seattle? We stood in the living room of that house and we prayed about it. And that offer came that same day. But then when it was time to move, we couldn't sell the house. We tried for over a year. We could not sell the house. And there's there's something in that, I, I believe. You know, if we just stay tuned in to what seems to be, you know, real and necessary. Just th- wait upon the Lord. Yeah. we just His timing is best. Come up with different solutions. You know, I'm sure he had a different one for us. But... We did it, done, and now we move on with the rest of our lives. So um, the next section of the book is actually the beginning of the book. That was just the prologue and the preface. So now we get into part one of the story of the hat that saved my life. And I want to, I'll start reading this. I don't know how far we'll get, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. So chapter one is the discovery. Now, before I read this, I want to share something with you. When I started this book, and I, I've met many, many people who believe that they have a book inside them just waiting to be written. And I agree with that. I think probably most people do have a book inside of them. And trying to figure out how do you start? How do you start writing a book? Well, I don't think you start by writing a book the first time out. I think what you do is you start by writing a paragraph. And then you write another paragraph. And you write the things that you know about. And then you go back in and you fill in the details. When I started this book, the intention was that it would become a booklet. Because I was a speaker. I wanted something that I could hand out to my my guests that were listening to my speeches. And I wanted to be able to give them this booklet. And I pictured 32 pages folded in half, stapled down the middle, you know, with a cardboard cover on it and nothing fancy at all. And I was actually going to school at Merrillhurst getting my degree in communications. And I pictured this book becoming just, like I said, a booklet. And I wrote it for my writing class. That's kind of where the whole thing started. 
And when I turned it in to my writing teacher as my final project, she said, Becky, you know, I want to tell you, this is really not a booklet. This is the beginning of a book. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you told me what happened. You know, I went through chronologically and just kind of gave the details of what happened. It's kind of like when you write a journal and you do journal entries. I've seen people take their journal entries and convert that to a book. But she said, it's not enough to tell us what happened. You need to show us what happened. And I said, but how do I do that? And she says, give us the word pictures. Pretend like you're writing a a screenplay. And so when you talk about things like, there was one moment in the book where I talked about feeling stuck to the couch. I was stuck. And she said, what did stuck feel like? And so I had to put a descriptive phrase around that. And, And before you knew it, I went through paragraph and paragraph by paragraph, and she went through and, and edited my book, my booklet for me, and we talked about it as we went along, and that 32-page booklet turned into approximately 150 pages of a book, and it took on a whole new life because now people could really, you know, relate a little bit more to it, and, you know, I've never been a great journal. Bill is a great journaler. He journals, you, how many books do you think you have collected in your life of your of your journaling what do you think bill well thousands and thousands of pages yeah i think so and someday it might be a really great life story but elijah said somebody would have to go in and translate it first <laughs> that's why i don't write you can't read my writing at all it's really it gets really terrible but but if there's something about journaling that really means something to some people for me it's easier to story tell you know i'm finding that it that works better for me. So um, so this first chapter, what my writing teacher suggested to me was rather than start it chronologically with the discovery, which is the name of the chapter, she said, find a turning point in the book and bring it forward and start the chapter with that turning point. And like she said to me, you'd see that a lot in movies, you know, where they start a turning point in the movie and that's where it starts. And then it says, three weeks earlier, and they go back, and they bring you up to that moment. You know what I'm talking about, right, when you see movies like that. So that's what I did. I went back through, and I found kind of a turning point moment, and that's where I started the book. But you know what? We're going to be out of time for this segment, so we're going to come back and talk about that in the final segment. I'll probably just get a little ways through this chapter, not very far, but um, stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute, and I'll show you an example of that, that turning point. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Female cancers affect women, but women's effects are felt throughout our families, workplaces, and communities. Electa is driving advances in precision radiation medicine across our portfolio of devices. By enabling treatment that is highly responsive to changes in tumor shape, position, and biology, but doesn't compromise the health of surrounding tissue and the patient, We protect the moments that matter in the lives of women with female cancers and everyone they touch. Learn more at electa.com. 
That's E-L-E-K-T-A dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been reading excerpts from my book, The Hat That Saved My Life. And before I proceed, I wanted to share with all of our listeners, you know, this book is available in three formats. One, hard copy, which is available through my website. Um, But if you purchase the book in digital format, which is either through Kindle or if you can go to audibles.com and either either Kindle or audibles.com search for uh, The Hat That Saved My Life. If you buy the book that way, um, 25% of those sales will go to Breast Friends to help us during this critical time. So it's something you can purchase for yourself, share it with others, um, and then know that Breast Friends is receiving 25% of the net proceeds on that. So wanted to share that with you. And all right, so the discovery. Here is the, the chapter that starts with a turning point moved forward. Sharon turned off the ignition and we sat together in silence. The gloom of the hospital garage closed in around me. Squealing tires echoed against the cold gray walls as someone made the turn toward the exit. Lucky for them, they were leaving this horrible place. I was afraid to move. In my mind, I was sitting on the edge of a very high cliff. One move in the wrong direction would plunge me to my death. Somehow, if I just stayed planted to the seat, the rest of this would go away. On this day, my life changed forever. On this day, I understood my own mortality. And on this day, I asked God, why me? It started on April 24th, 1996. On my way to that appointment, the necessary evil that my doctor had insisted I attend. I was in a hurry. I made the appointment for 7.30 a.m. so I could make my 9 a.m. sales call to see my most important client in my portfolio. I had obviously no time for things like a mammogram. Dressed for the day and everything appropriate for a sales call, I put on everything but my deodorant. The receptionist told me not to wear deodorant because it would interfere with the procedure. I figured a quick smashing of the breast, a smattering of deodorant, throw my shirt and jacket back on, and I'd be on my way. On this day in April, the day I was too busy for the mammogram, I dressed in my best wool knit navy blue pantsuit. I wore the blue, white, and gold earrings my 15-year-old daughter had given to me on a birthday years before. Beth was my fashion goddess. In her early childhood, she had a knack for picking outfits that her friends admired. Even before the fashion magazines declared them acceptable, my shoulder-length dark hair was pulled back into a low ponytail and held in place with a navy blue ribbon. I worked late the night before to prepare for my sales appointment. My briefcase was loaded with the information I needed for my customer. I was ready. I just needed to get this stupid mammogram out of the way. Fighting my way through rush hour traffic and heavy rain, I cursed the nurse practitioner for forcing me to schedule this appointment. I arrived for my mammogram just before 7.30 a.m. 
Always on time. That was my motto. Three other women were in the waiting room when I arrived. Oh, great, I thought to myself. I hurried, and now I get to wait. Sitting impatiently in the waiting room, I checked my watch as I mindlessly flipped through magazines. I waited for someone, anyone, to call my name. They didn't. My mind shifted to work, deep in thought about my upcoming sales call. I rehearsed my opening remarks over and over again. You can never be too prepared, my second motto. I was just coming in for the kill when I was startled back to reality. Finally, I heard my name. (coughs) If you're under 40, you've likely never had a mammogram. There are two things you should know besides no deodorant. First, the technician will escort you to the dressing room where you strip from the waist up and put on one of those goofy blue hospital gowns that open in the front. And second, you wait. I went into my own private little dressing room, stripped as instructed, and checked my watch. The technician eventually returned, and the two of us proceeded to the mammography room. We entered the dimmed room. How nice, mood lighting, I thought. The large metal machine hummed and welcomed me like a giant mechanical vice, its arms outstretched as if waiting for a hug. The technician shut the door. She told me to stand in front of the machine and open my gown. She lifted and pushed parts of my breasts I never knew I had. She positioned my breasts just so on the machine platform. And then came the torture. She hit the button on the machine and the platforms began to close in on each other. The only thing stopping them from resting firmly against each other was my breast. I was certain the machine would stop its approach any second, but it kept moving. My full breast was suddenly squished as flat as a frisbee between the platforms. I thought it had flattened to clear into the next room. Hold your breath and don't move, she said as she stepped behind the plexiglass barrier. Taking in a final shallow breath through my nose, I held very still. Heaven forbid I should move and have to do this again, I thought. The big machine vibrated for a second, and I imagined I could hear the sounds of the camera lenses clicking as they created the x-ray. She positioned me several different ways, and we repeated the process. Finally, she got all the different angles she needed, and I was free to leave this torture chamber. She sent me back to the curtained-off dressing room on another wait. Sitting in that little room, I flipped through the same magazine. Under normal circumstances, if all goes well, the technician will be back shortly and say, it looks good, go ahead and get dressed. When she came back and pulled open the curtain, I fully expected to hear that desired message. Instead, I saw a look on her face that told me a different message was about to be delivered. The doctor would like some more pictures, she said. Please follow me. I put the magazine down, grabbed the front of my gown and to hold it shut, and followed her back into that room with that hideous machine. I kept thinking all the way, I'm sure it's nothing. She probably just messed up. We went through the same procedure, and again, I, was, I went to my little room and I waited. By now, I was pretty annoyed, not to mention a little sore. I really didn't have time to wait for her to get it right. It was close to 9 a.m., and calling my customer to tell him I was running late was out of the question. My cell phone wouldn't work in the room, probably due to interference from all the equipment. So I waited again. I was sure the second set would result in the message I wanted to hear the first time, that everything was fine. This was not the case. She came back a third time and finally a fourth. On the fourth visit to my holding cell, I was told that I had graduated to the ultrasound machine. Now I was starting to get scared. What I thought was an error on her part was turning into something much worse. I'd had ultrasound several times before during my pregnancies. The fact that doctors could tell that that little black and white tissue on the monitor was a baby was both encouraging and exciting. 
I wasn't sure what the doctor wanted to look at on the monitor this time, but I was quite sure it wasn't a baby. I entered the ultrasound room, and this time, instead of standing in front of a machine that would squish my breasts, I was asked to lie down on the gurney. The radiologist put some warm gel on my breast, just like they did on my stomach so many times before. He gently slid the wand back and forth over my breast and finally settled on one spot. A few seconds brought clarity to the screen as he continued to look at the monitor. I didn't like the expression on his face. Slowly, turning my gaze from his face to the screen, my eyes focused on random blobs on the monitor. With much difficulty, I finally saw the monster that the radiologist had been looking at. I suddenly felt transported into a Hollywood movie. I hadn't seen Alien in quite a long time, but I thought I was about to give birth to one. The ultrasound revealed a mass of tissue with tentacles that seemed to reach into my soul. I thought I was looking at some kind of an animal. The body was shaped like a seahorse, curved from top to bottom, but it had claws like a scorpion. My head began to spin and I could barely breathe. The next words from the radiologist were words I never dreamed of hearing. I can't be 100% positive, but I think you have breast cancer. He went on to tell me how sorry he was and urged me to make an appointment with a specialist as soon as possible for confirmation. He said he wished he had better news. Me too. I went out to my car in shock, in tears, and madder than hell. How can this happen to me? Cancer happens to other people and to old people. I was only 43, successful, and busy. I tried to call my husband on my cell phone, but I could not see the numbers through my tears. After several attempts to dial, I finally got it right. My husband, Bill, answered the phone. Upon hearing his voice, I suddenly fell apart and cried out loud. He tried to console me, but he hadn't a clue as to what was happening. He knew I was upset, more so than he had witnessed in a long time. I was sure I'd lost my job. I'm sorry, he was sure I'd lost my job. He knew how much I loved my job and knew that anything other than losing it could not possibly cause such an emotional outburst. I don't remember much, but I do know that I told him that I wish it were that simple. That's when he knew it was something really bad. I told him the mammogram revealed probable breast cancer and I needed to see a specialist. I couldn't believe these words were coming out of my mouth. Though I was not an exercise queen or nutritional guru, I led a fairly active life. I wasn't really overweight. I was just (laughs) under height, as I call it. In my mind, I was a thin person trapped in this robust body. Thin yet robust active people don't get breast cancer. After the call to my husband, I called my office and asked one of my coworkers to cancel all my appointments. I asked her to call several of the customers and tell them that I had a family emergency and that I would reschedule later when I returned to work. When I got home from my mammogram appointment, still wearing no deodorant, I suddenly didn't care. The sales call I missed no longer mattered. I walked into my house, which was dirty and dusty from a major remodel that seemed never to end. The contractor had pulled the roof off the garage that morning and was gearing up to add the 500-square-foot addition. Funny, I thought, my house is getting a nice upgrade while I'm falling completely apart. I tried to ignore the construction workers, but it was pretty tough when they were walking in and out to use the bathroom. I made my way to the kitchen, grabbed the phone book, and looked at my doctor's phone number. Shaking, I dialed the phone. The radiologist had already called the doctor, so he was expecting my call. He gave me a referral to a specialist. I called the specialist for an appointment. The receptionist answered the phone, surgical oncologists. I didn't like the sound of that. It sounded scary and quite official. 
I told her I needed to see someone right away. She told me their first opening was in two weeks. You don't understand, I said to her. I don't wait well. I need to get in now. She reconsidered and suddenly suddenly found an opening tomorrow. Distraught and confused, my solution was to open a bottle of wine, and I don't actually remember drinking it, but later, when our neighbor came over to talk to my husband about a trip the two had planned for the weekend, they were going to Promise Keepers in Seattle, he saw the bottle of wine, half gone, and the x-rays lying on the counter. Bad news, he asked. I believe so, I responded, and poured myself another glass. That is all we have time to give today. We'll pick up the rest of this story um, the next time when we do story time part two. But I do want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. And I I want to share a little bit about going to Promise Keepers. Um, Bill and our friend um, Shannon had decided to go to Promise Keepers, which is a big group up in Seattle. At that time, it was in Seattle. And it's for men who wanted to be there to pray for their families and be there to support their families and their wives. And and he when he saw what was going on with me, he asked me if I didn't want him to go, if I would rather he stay home because he couldn't imagine leaving me. Do you remember that, Bill? Yeah. And I told him there's no place I'd rather have him be than with 65,000 other men all praying for their families. So they, they left, and they went together. I think it was that next day or that weekend when they came up. But it was, um, it was a really critical and, and beautiful time because I know when he went, they prayed for me, and I felt their prayers. But that did put me home alone because the kids, we'd ship the kids off to be with their friends and spend the night with them so that they wouldn't have to watch me cry and not be able to explain it to them. So we're going to get more into that when we get back into the rest of the story. But I do want to remind you, consider buying my book because, again, 25% of the sales will go to Breast Friends. Just go to audible.com and search for The Hat That Saved My Life or go to Kindle on Amazon and search for The Hat That Saved My Life and purchase the book in digital format and 25% will go to Breast Friends. The other thing that you can do, again, is you can go to breastfriends.org and make a donation right there on um, through the website, or you can go to your use your texting device on your phone and go to four one four 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 and text the phrase BF Radio. Or on Facebook, go to Breast Friends Around the Globe, and I'll see you there. Yeah. Um, be a part of 113 nations that have listened to this podcast and help us get out to technically 195 nations in the world. So we're over halfway there already. uh, Join that large global group of folks that are supporting one another. So we just want to thank you for listening and for tuning in and being part of of our show. And Bill, I want to thank you for giving up your morning to be here with me and be part of what what we're doing here too. And, you know, I couldn't do anything that I'm doing without you. You know that. You're my honey. <laughs> now, we promised that this was going to be humorous and fun and entertaining. So, I uh, I'll have a joke for you. I think I've said it once before. Um, if you have a vacuum and it's dirty and you clean it, are you then a vacuum cleaner? Okay. Anyway, with that, we will be back next week. And until then, remember, there is always hope. And we are here to help you find it. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Becky Olson again next Wednesday at 12 o'clock noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is always hope, and we are here to help you find it. We'll talk again next time.